It's good to see you all this morning. Let me turn this on. All right. We are continuing our study in Genesis, as I really shouldn't have to say, because it's just going to be that way for a while. And, um, but we actually do still have this week and next week still in Genesis chapter 1. And, which is, but there's just some really important things here that need their, their own undivided attention. Right? And, um, and so I think the subject matter for this morning is really, is really interesting and very pertinent considered the times that we're living in right now. Because when it comes to earth, most people have a side they tend to lean on that ends up either catering to a group that they want to please or trying to avoid a group that they don't want to be affiliated with. Right, Eric Raymond passed on a statement that he found humorous on Earth Day. Someone on Twitter said, Today is Earth Day, or as conservative evangelicals call it, Thursday. <laughs> that was a joke that, uh, that I also thought was pretty funny, but it pokes fun at, at something that's real, the reality that caring for the environment has taken on just a lot of political weight and a lot of political narratives. Many Christians don't want to be associated with progressive politics, and the environment tends to be on, uh, you know, high priority on progressive political agendas. And, and when issues become political, they also tend to lose their nuance. You know, um, people have a hard time finding middle ground on things anymore. Take immigration, for example. The narratives are either that you hate foreigners or you hate America, depending on which side you vote for. And with the environment, it's either like you worship creation rather than the creator because you drive a Tesla, or you hate the earth and everyone on it because you drive a Silverado. But this morning, we're going to look specifically at Genesis 1, 26 through 31 and 2, 15, with a focus on what it means to, well, to rule and subdue the earth. And what a biblical worldview of the stewardship of creation looks like. We already see different worldviews when it comes to mankind's relationship with the rest of creation. Uh, some of them have the, uh, have the mindset that God is not involved, right? So one worldview would be God's not involved and this earth is our only hope, right? Like this is all we have. Like this is humanity's hope. And, and so... The other worldview, though, is that, yeah, there's no God, but you know what? This earth is not our only hope. Thus, we need to find <laughs> backup plans where, uh, you know, humans can inhabit other planets. And then when we get God involved, we see one mentality is that, well, pff, it's all going to burn anyway, so who cares? And I'm sure there's other worldviews out there, but those three seem to be the most loud and popular ones that we see often. In practical terms, we see these play out in different ways. So you got the leave it alone approach, right? Just stop touching it. Don't touch creation. Stop eating animals. Stop cutting trees. Stop having babies. Stop using gas engines. And we have to do everything possible to make sure that it can last forever because that's all we have. And when you have that worldview that there is no God and that this is all there is, it it does make sense that you would go to extremes to try to make sure that it could be preserved for eternity. And it kind of like, then in that, 
instance, humanity becomes kind of like the really overprotective parent that like puts padding and football helmet on their kid to go play in the yard. You know, you just do whatever it takes to make sure that nothing happens. And then we have the billionaire astronaut approach, uh, which we see mostly with uh, Elon Musk, right? Where there's this idea of, well, yeah, I mean, we got to do we got to go to extremes and spend whatever is necessary to make sure that there is a backup plan because this one probably won't last forever, so we got to go inhabit somewhere else where he wants people to live on Mars. And then we see the other end of the spectrum. Give it all you got. You know, just do whatever you need to in order to further your own agenda. If dumping chemicals in drinking water makes you money, do it. If, if dumping your trash in the ocean cuts your overheads, then go for it. But as we will see, none of these is the biblical worldview. And so what is? Well, we turn to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, says the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that you made us, that you made us good, that you had a wonderful design. We pray that you would help us to understand what this means for us today, along with the rest of the counsel of your word, we pray that, that you would give us clarity, that you would help us to be ready to receive whatever it is you want to teach us. God, that we would find what your vision, what your design is, Lord, the, the worldview that we need to have to guide how we approach your creation. And we thank you that you haven't left us blind, that you haven't left us alone. We thank you for creating us and everything else in this world. And you deserve honor and glory and praise. So help us to learn this morning Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, next week, Pastor Toby's going to focus specifically on the image of God, right? We felt like that needed its own sermon.
because there, there's a lot, there's, it's a really important thing to understand what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And so he's going to focus on that next week. And we felt like that this week, this idea of dominion, of ruling, needed its own focus. And last week, Toby emphasized that the reality that humans were the crown of God's creation, that we were special, and that culminates in being made in God's image and then being given something special in these verses that we just saw. We were given dominion over the rest of creation. It says that mankind was to rule the creatures of the earth and to subdue the earth itself. Now, first, I want us to think about what this might have looked like before sin. You know, it's easy for us to see what things are like today, but what was it like? What kind of rulers were Adam and Eve supposed to be? What did it look like to subdue the earth before sin? When we think of what ruling looks like, all sorts of things come into our heads, especially because of our own experiences as fallen human beings in a fallen world. So we picture kings who rule their subjects with a heavy hand, right, and lording their power over them and exploiting them for their own personal gain. We think of subdue, that leads us to things like slavery or handcuffing criminals or forcing an opponent into submission. And we, our vision of ruling and subduing are heavily skewed because of our experiences and the sinfulness in this world. But we can receive guidance throughout Scripture of what His picture of these things is. And we can start here in Genesis 1, because before sin, ruling earth was very peaceful experience. And you can see the fill-in-the-blanks there if you want to follow along on the notes in your bulletins this morning. You know, humans and animals, I don't know if you noticed in the verses that we read, but they were both vegetarians. You know, things were peaceful. Things were very good. There was no danger. Humans ruled the animals, but there would have been no resistance to that. Does that make sense? Like, we don't imagine Adam having to go break a wild horse or put, put a collar and a leash on a dog and things like that, you know, and... There was this perfect harmony between creations. The animals were in perfect obedience to humans. And even the plants, you know, we don't, and and the creation itself, we don't imagine Adam and Eve struggling to produce food the way that we might today or having to throw away rotten fruit or getting sick because they drank some unfiltered water. It wasn't like that. To rule and subdue the earth, they didn't have to use force because everything was a willing participant in a perfect environment. It's amazing. Much like Christ's rule in our lives should be today, right? Like we willingly and gladly submit to him and he loves and cares for us. And this is also reflected in God's teaching about the home, about husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 Starting in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so we see this, this ruling relationship here where Christ rules the church and husbands lead, rule the home. But the question is, well, okay, but what is that supposed to look like? 
And we see that in the continuing verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. You see, husbands leading or ruling in the home was, is meant to be practiced as an act of love. And wives following the leadership of their husbands is meant to be an act of love. This is not a, this is not a position of abuse and exploitation. Right? This passage also points to how we should rule our own bodies and how we should care for our own bodies, which I'm going to expand on a little later. But similarly, this is the way that God calls pastors to lead churches, right? In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, Therefore I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. See, pastors have this authority in a church. It's, it's, it's a ruling position, but it's not to be by force, not domineering, not tyrannical. It's a position of love and service. And we can see God's warning against Israel's leaders, even in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 34. This is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. We see other counsel. In 1 Kings 12, there was a a new king, a guy named Rehoboam, who, uh, well... Just when he became king, the people came to him and, and wanted to, uh, well, just look at what happened. First Kings 12, starting in verse 3. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the older men who had attended his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? They answered him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. The young men who had grown up with him, oh, but he disregarded the advice that the older men gave him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and now attended him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him said to him, 
Thus you should say to this people who spoke to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you must lighten it for us. Thus you should say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Rehoboam ignored the wise advice to rule in a way that pleased God and instead went in the direction that rejected God's wisdom and to rule in a way that displeased God. And I'm going through all of these scriptures just to kind of show that ruling according to God's good design was never meant to be a position of, of abuse and exploitation, violence. It's to be a position of love and service. That's God's design for ruling. Which is, which is helpful. And it all, serve, it all goes to serve a greater purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God. Because that's what we've been created for. That's what humans have been created for. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And, and it's not just the humans. Even the creatures declare God's glory. In the same chapter later on, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And not just humans and the creatures, but Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, when we think about what God meant for humanity to rule and subdue the earth, we have to understand that the end goal has always been and will always be the glory of God. And so how we approach things, we do so with the lens of does this honor and glorify God? Does this cause creation to magnify his name and declare his glory and give him praise? We were not created to be domineering, abusive rulers. And so this really changes how we look at things. You know, it definitely leads us to reject the idea of like, well, it's all going to burn, so who cares? Just do whatever. Well, we care. Why? Because trashing God's creation doesn't exactly bring Him honor and glory. A sky full of smoke and smog doesn't exactly declare the glory of the Lord. The way that a, a sunset over a mountaintop on a clear day does. You see, we care about the earth because it is a gift from the God that we love. We love God and we care for his creation. Think about someone that you really love. Imagine if you made them a gift. Imagine if you put love and time and energy into making them a wonderful gift. So let's say that you made them the most beautiful jacket, right? And you gave that gift to someone that you really love. What would bring you joy to see? Would it bring you joy and honor if they never 
hung it up and they threw it around just willy-nilly and they never washed it and they let their, their dog chew on it and they, they ate with their plate just sitting over it and got food stains all over it. Would that bring you joy? No. And what would them treating that gift that way say about their attitude towards it? Well, they don't really care very much, do they? They, they don't value that gift very much. And what would them treating that gift poorly say about their attitude toward you? Would it reflect honor and respect and love? No, it wouldn't. So we must reject a mentality that leads us to treat earth like it's a hotel room or a rental car that we just don't care much about. Which is a problem anyway, right? Because we should still care about other people's property but that's a different story. Not only is that not honoring and loving to God, but it's also not loving to our neighbors. Take a look at some beaches. This is a picture of a beach. And this is real stuff that you can find all over the world. This is, here's another one. You can let it sink in. And this is real stuff. And I know this because I have walked on beaches like this. And I could have included pictures of animals that will just break your heart. Of the things that have happened to animals that, that I didn't want to include the pictures of because I felt like they were too much. Like it might be too hard for some people to see. And this stuff should break our hearts. It's tragic. It should bring sadness to see God's creation like this. This doesn't declare the glory of the Lord. When I look at that, I don't think, wow, God, look at what you've made. And I think this does. See, Trashing our planet is not loving to the Lord, it's not loving to other humans, to the other creatures of the earth, or to the earth itself. Now, does this mean, though, that we need to swing in the opposite direction and start embracing other extremes, start being climate alarmists, and go to every possible extreme to make sure that this planet can go on and on for eternity? Absolutely not. That is also rejected by a biblical worldview. Like I mentioned earlier, many people, they, they remove God from the equation and they act like this world is our only hope and that this is our future, and it's not. Earth is not our hope, and it is not meant to last forever. That's what we see in the Bible. My hope and future is in Christ and Christ alone. Right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So whether you, whether you take the approach that we must preserve the earth forever or we must find another place for humanity to go and live, what you are doing is you are rejecting God as the sovereign sustainer of this world. And while we must reject abusing the earth simply because it's not meant to last forever, we also need to remember and understand that it's it's not meant to last forever. Look at 
what Paul said in Romans 8. He said, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But, what, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, this create, creation has a problem. And the Bible teaches us that creation's problem is not carbon, it is sin. It has been subjected to futility. It's in bondage to decay because of sin. And our hope, as Paul points us to, is not in creation, but in Christ. And the Bible teaches us that this world is not in our hands. Second Peter 3.7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. See, we are to lovingly and gently steward God's creation. But don't for a second think that anything that we can do is going to mess up God's plan. Because it's not. No amount of cow flatulence is going to throw off God's schedule. God is preserving this world according to his plan, and he is reserving this world for judgment. So our attitude toward this planet should be like our attitude towards our own bodies. How many of you know that your body is not going to last forever? We've all realized that, I hope. You know, one day we're going to get a new one. Amen. Amen. Praise God. But does that mean that we should just go ahead and trash our bodies now just because eventually they're going to wear out? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We should nourish and cherish it because that is what is loving to ourselves and it's what is honoring to God. And just like with the jacket illustration earlier, that gift, right? If you gave someone that that gift of this jacket, it wouldn't be loving and honoring to abuse it, but it also wouldn't be good to just like pack it away, store it away in a box somewhere and just never touch it, right? You know, it's not good to my body to go smashing my bones with hammers, but it's also not good just to sit sedentary and not use the body that God has given me. And we shouldn't abuse the earth, but we also shouldn't act like it's not here for us to to use and to enjoy and to be creative with. 
We shouldn't mistreat it, but we also shouldn't act like it's in our hands to preserve it for eternity. I don't want to abuse my body, but I also don't want to start getting a bunch of weird surgeries and taking weird drugs to try to extend my life forever and ever and ever. I'm just going to treat it right until God's time for this body comes to an end. And one day it will. And that's how we need to approach the earth, right? The planet. Don't go crazy. Don't put your hope in it. Don't worship it. But treat it right until God's plan for it comes to an end. And one day it will. So that's, that's the bulk. That's the main thing this morning that I wanted to communicate. But there's some other things that I want to go back and address. Just some crossing my T's, dotting my I's, because there, there are some other things that people get wrong about this passage that we're looking at this morning. And so I wanted to address two false teachings uh, so first, one thing that comes up is some people take the be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth thing as like a command that is continuing on today, and they would use that to say, well, well, we're supposed to still be doing that, so you should get married and have children. That's what you're supposed to do. That's silly. It's silly. If God... If God told you to go fill a jug up with water, and you went and you filled that jug up with water, you would expect that you were done with that command, right? Well, it seems that we have filled the jug up with water. Because otherwise, why would the New Testament make it abundantly clear that singleness is, is fine? In fact, it's a good thing. There are no commands to get married and have children. And if there were... Well, it seems that that would make Jesus a sinner. So, anyways. That, you know, that's not a big thing, but it happens. Now, there is another thing that is a big thing that, that is very popular. Some people have taken the idea of humans having dominion in the world and turned it into a Christian heresy called dominionism. Dominionism teaches basically that Christians are called to and will eventually kind of take, assume ruling positions in every sector of the world and, and will kind of rule the world and make it better and better and better until, and that ushers in Christ's second coming. And so the idea is that Christians will be rulers and should be trying to become rulers in government and military and education and business and entertainment, the arts, media, family, religion, and this is also connected to a post-millennial belief that in the end times, that's what will happen and the world will get better and better and better and better and then Jesus will come back. So the thinking goes that we were given dominion by God, but then it was taken away from us when we sinned. And so Satan got dominion and then Jesus came back and he took dominion back and then he handed the keys to the kingdom over to his followers. And now we have this calling to basically go subdue the earth as in rule it, and that will usher in Christ's second coming. That is a misuse of Genesis, which should be obvious, but obviously it's not. And furthermore, Jesus made it pretty clear that following him would be difficult, that it is a difficult, narrow path that only few will find, and 
the early church's example reflects that reality, not, not some calling to go and, and, be, and rule the world, so to speak, the way that dom- this dominionism teaches. Instead, we are the outcasts of the world, hated, rejected, persecuted. And there are different philosophies within dominion theology. I'm just kind of giving a surface explanation right now, so I'm not going into all the nuances, but they're all based on bad interpretations of Scripture. And so if you come across that, and you probably have, and if not, you probably will, because it's really popular and it's gaining, it's gaining popularity right now, then at least you'll know, you know, that's, oh, I remember that. That's, I don't think that's good. And maybe it'll give you something to dig deeper into later on, you know. But third, when studying this passage, I came across a position uh, that uh, I read a paper by Derek Isaacs, and he had a position that I hadn't encountered before, but it, it did make a lot of sense. We typically think of humans' dominion over the earth as, like, as, as a command that, that was given and continues to be uh, in effect today. However, there's a pretty convincing biblical argument to be made that our dominion ended whenever we sinned. And rather than seeing it as a command, it could be seen as a position that humanity was in, that they lost whenever we sinned, or even if it was a command, like something you're supposed to go and, and fulfill, then it could be something that was lost, that the sin ended that and nullified it. And there are some good biblical reasons to think this way. Once sin entered the world, Scripture does describe this world as being ruled by Satan rather than mankind. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's talking about Satan there. And then John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Again, a reference to Satan. And then a couple chapters later, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in regard to me. And and look at what Satan was able to offer Jesus when he tempted him in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And we have no reason at all from Scripture to think that Satan could not have fulfilled that. That he could give him those things. And so when sin came into the world, there's a good reason to believe that mankind no longer had dominion, that we no longer have been the rulers. Instead, Satan's the one in charge here, in charge. I mean, you know, when Jesus came back, he showed who was really in charge. And then when he comes back again, he's going to reclaim the throne and take dominion of this world. But we do see a striking difference between the world before sin and after sin. The earth, the seas, plants, and animals, they now all pose a danger to us, right? If we are the rulers, they are certainly not willing participants 
anymore. Our experience makes us feel like we don't have dominion. We're at the hands of natural disasters and diseases and animals. They don't play by our rules. And so I wanted to throw that out there just because I felt like it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's something to think about. I don't think, however, that it changes how we practically live our, our lives as long as we have a proper understanding of stewardship of creation. It could definitely change it if you have an improper understanding. But if we have a, a biblical worldview of how we should approach the earth, then I don't think it changes how we live out our lives. Because whether our rule ended with sin or not, the attitude, our attitude should be the same. It's a healthy balance between the extreme of abusing and exploiting creation and using it for our own selfish gain. And then the other extreme of, of worshiping it and, and putting our hope in it. And I thought that Douglas Kelly, um, this, this is kind of a long quote that I thought would be a good way to kind of sum these things up and finish this morning. He said, the call to tend the garden and classify the animals provides a fine and fruitful balance in the relationship of mankind to the environment, which God has placed under his derived authority. This healthy balance is not to be found outside the biblical faith. Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, for instance, tend to neglect developing the garden, viewing it as a sort of God not to be tampered with as do some forms of Christian mysticism. Materialist, technological industrialism tends to destroy the garden for short-sighted economic purposes, whether in the strip mines of West Virginia, the slag heaps of the English Midlands, or the dead rivers of Romania. And the ultra-environmentalists, or Greens, tend to elevate it above the, le le the legitimate needs and purposes of human society, thus losing their own significance and failing to bring the, to fruition what man could accomplish with the remarkable capacities of the created order. But the dominion of Genesis teaches man both to respect and to subdue nature so as to shape it in a direction that will reflect the beauty, order, and glory of its creator. For God's glory. That's what we've been called. That's what we were created for. That's what everything was created for. For God's glory. And we need to treat it like it's a gift. And like it is something that can glorify God. Not just something that can serve us. But something that serves the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for creation. And I know that it is so messed up from sin. It's in bondage to decay. It's been groaning, Lord, and just slowly dying. But even still, when I walk out into your world, it still amazes me. Just the way that you've made things, the way that you've designed things, the way that the world works, the intricacies 
of, of how you placed us so perfectly in this universe and how everything works together. And, and sometimes I just, and, and we, even without that knowledge, the scientific knowledge that we have today, which still leads us to be in awe and amazement of you, even without that, we walk outside, we look at the skies, we look at the animals, we look at the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, and they declare your glory. They scream, God, we are created by God. And, and not just any God, but the only one, and, a, and one who loves us, and one who designed us. God, we lament the things that have happened in this world and the way that your creation has been abused, has been misused, has been exploited, has been trashed. We lament the things that have happened to the creatures of this world. It is sad, it's heartbreaking. God, we pray that we would be a good example to this world, but we know that it, it has been subjected to futility and that it's not made. Your plan is that this world, the way that it is, will not last forever. Whether you come and you completely annihilate it and make a new earth or whether you're just going to ruin this one and renew this one, Lord, either way, you have a plan. And, and we can't mess it up. We are not that powerful. So help us to have, to hold, to teach, to promote a good biblical understanding of the stewardship of creation. Help us to appreciate the gift that you've given us and to use it in a way that honors you and, and that brings you joy. And forgive us for the times that we fail to do that. Lord, be patient with us. But help us to more than anything promote that the, our hope in this world is in Christ. We don't hope in the things that we see. We hope in you. And, and all these people in this world... That, that hope in the things that they see, whether it's the earth, whether it's Mars, whether it's just looking off into the distance in the galaxies, they hope in the things that they see and it is sad and they are lost and they need Christ. They need the truth and we pray that they would see it. And we pray that you would use us to take it to them. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.